Welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia. I'm Steve Stein, and in this week's episode, we explore the thin veil between the living and the dead. Ah yes, it's Halloween. So I must be talking about ghouls and goblins and all the scary tales that go with it, aren't I? But no, that's not it. I'm talking about epidemiology. Epi whoosie Epidemiology. That's the branch of medicine that deals with the incidence, distribution, and possible control of diseases, or so says Wikipedia. While most of us are out and about getting on with living and working, a small but essential group of researchers are watching the way we live and work, studying disease patterns and contemplating the odds of epidemics. Communicable diseases come in all shapes and sizes, and while many are encouraged by human activity relating to how we eat, greet, wash, and copulate, others are more insidious. They lurk in dark corners, fester in humid conditions. They spread through touch or even worse through the air we breathe. Spooked yet? Okay, enough already. So here's some good news. Malaria is in retreat. That's right, one of the world's most debilitating mosquito-borne diseases is whistling its swan song throughout much of Asia. China, it appears, hasn't had a case in three consecutive years, and other emerging markets like Myanmar are seeing such vast reductions that it too hopes to declare victory in just a few short years. How is this possible, you ask? Here to tell us is Ben Rolfe. CEO of the Asia-Pacific Leaders Malaria Alliance, a nonprofit organization funded in part by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Its goal is to create a malaria-free Asia by 2030. And if recent gains persist, this just might happen. I kicked off our conversation by asking Ben to tell us a bit about himself and his recent encounters with the dreaded disease. Well, my name is Ben Rolfe. I'm the CEO of the Asia-Pacific Leaders Malaria Alliance, APLMA, possibly the worst acronym of any international organization. Um, we've been running for about six years, and uh, our mission is to eliminate malaria from the whole of Asia-Pacific by 2030. And how's that going? Extraordinarily well. Um, I don't think anyone could have predicted just how much success the, the public health community, not just us, the public health community in Asia would have had. We've really halved the burden in the last 10 years. Um, both deaths and cases have halved. The amount of resources going into malaria have doubled. And we've seen some extraordinary successes. China down to zero cases, Sri Lanka malaria-free, Timor-Leste malaria-free, Myanmar halved and halved again. Even India, which was the biggest problem when I began this in 2014, have halved their malaria burden just in the last two years. The world's in need of good news, so I'm glad to hear that. But why has it happened and why has it been so effective? Well, that's a big question. Um, resources, I guess, is the bottom line. There's more money going into the sector, and I like to think we've had a role in, in, in promoting that resource mobilization. We focus on engaging with central agencies, prime minister's offices, uh, ministries of finance, foreign affairs. So we try and shine a light on the issue, but from... Uh, I guess uh, uh, from a great height, you know, from those central agencies where uh, a small investment in malaria is a relatively trivial issue for a prime minister's office, but can have a huge impact on the ground. So, so it's just good politics. Malaria is something that pervades in many of these Southeast Asian, South Asian countries, and therefore to address it with low-cost solutions just makes good sense. Yeah, I mean, it's, malaria is attractive because it's a $1 course of treatment, a $1 test, uh, and a bed net to stop people getting bitten, which is maybe $4. So we have this amazingly cost-effective intervention package which anyone can deliver you know a village health worker in the most rural area can do a pinprick and test somebody get a result within about three minutes and then if that person's positive give them a one dollar course of treatment they'll be better in three days 
And what's changed? Because for decades, I know that it was this, this pervasive problem. I, I lived in Africa for a while. I got malaria myself, and uh, I, everybody I know in my village had malaria and dealt with it. Um, if it was such a low cost, or maybe it's, it's just the, the treatments have changed over time, but is it, is it the way it's been addressed? Is it awareness? Is it the kind of cost of treatments? What are the things that have changed that have allowed you to get these results? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I think the first thing, having lived in Africa myself for 10 years, you know, malaria being such a cheap and easy disease to treat, it really does go to show how weak health systems still are in much of sub-Saharan Africa. You know, the fact that we still have a child dying every two minutes from a disease you can treat for a dollar is a kind of a stain on humanity. And I think, you know, we can't shy away from that. The, the situation in Africa is bad. We've achieved a lot in 10 years, but the gains are now stagnant and we need a lot more money in sub-Saharan Africa to get anywhere near elimination. But in Asia, of course, the, the, the financial trends and the health system trends are moving in the right direction. Health systems are getting stronger, more money's going into the sector, and critically for malaria, health services are penetrating into rural areas like previously it was impossible. You know, I was in, in Cambodia a few weeks ago on the, on the Lao border. And, you know, the communities there, people are looking healthier than I've ever seen them. The kids are all in school. You know, we are really seeing development, not fast enough, but it really is penetrating into, you know, the forested and border regions that were really suffering 10, 15 years ago. So these are just the benefits of economic progress and development uh, writ large. That's right. I mean, it, it, it's before we all get too optimistic, I mean, deforestation is another big issue. I mean, malaria thrives in forested border regions and we're seeing huge deforestation which of course does help malaria even if the other uh, environmental externalities are not so good so i've been looking for that silver lining on deforestation we just found it yeah i mean i was flying out of um nepidor uh, a few months ago actually last year and uh, you know if you fly out at night you can see the fires down um you know in those forested regions so certainly there are other environmental trends that are that are not counting for us in any great way but in terms of the narrow malaria agenda, um, we've seen cheaper tools than ever before. They are getting into areas that previously we didn't have health workers. The public awareness, uh, community awareness of that malaria is a treatable disease, of course, is, is there because of new media, etc. And we have more money. We have new money. Just last week, the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB and Malaria got a $14 billion replenishment. Um, I was there, it was extraordinary. Bill Gates was there, Bono was there, everyone, Macron was chairing the meeting and they mobilized $14 billion for the next three years. That will have a game-changing effect on, for public health. Could this set the trend for other communicable or other uh, infectious diseases? Is this just uh, you know the first rung in terms of uh, a low-cost effort to eradicate uh, a pervasive disease? Well, it's a really important issue. You know, malaria is attractive because if you get these cheap treatments into communities, the results are instant and dramatic. And so this is where we've seen these extraordinary gains in the last few years. Now, it's a really good advertisement, if you like, for investment in prevention. You know, each person that we have prevented getting sick has, you know, better educational outcomes. They're able to, make, you know, support their family. They're not taking time off for being sick. And um, those benefits percolate into the social and economic development of communities. For me, it's a great advertisement for why we invest in public health. We try and put money in at the beginning to stop people get sick, rather than putting 20 times those resources in to try and cure them once they have got sick. 
Has there been an argument made in recent years to shift the focus uh, with governments towards treatment of malaria? For instance, has somebody uh, addressed the economic impact of uh, incidents of malaria, therefore, you know, reduction in GDP or growth or workforce? Uh, What's moved and shifted uh, and, and what arguments were used to get those movements? So I think the the fascinating case study, if you like, about malaria is that we have spent the last six years engaging with ministries of finance exactly on this agenda. The return on investment from an investment in malaria, the benefits accrue to children, kids go to school, uh, mothers and fathers go to work, and um, people stay out of hospitals. So that's all a win-win-win. For me, I think we now need to learn from that model of engaging with central agencies and selling public health beyond malaria to really keep investment in prevention and public health. That's for vaccines, polio. Um, you know, we've got to keep resources in public health and primary health care because, of course, the the march of history is somewhat against us. Asia is increasingly moving to a U.S.-style private health insurance finance model. And why, why is that? I mean, why, why have we uh, created a new, I mean, you, you, all of the research is out there to show that preventive actually can get you a better result at a lower cost. Why is it that we, you know, organizations aren't responding to that and shifting the way that they're applying or deploying healthcare resources? Well, it's a critical and and deeply political question. And I think on the one hand, we have to be really grateful and happy, uh, certainly as a public health practitioner, that um, healthcare wins votes. You know, it is great that Prime Minister Modi um, can run on a platform of providing universal access to healthcare and that they choose to do so. The problem is that it is far more attractive in the short term to give out health insurance cards that will give people hospital treatment than invest in largely invisible vaccination programs or community health workers that the key voting constituencies, often urban middle classes, don't see. Yeah, Explain that for the listeners, what's going on in India right now. So India is a great case study. Um, the, the Prime Minister there uh, announced the Ayushman Bharat program, which is planning to um, ensure 200 million households, that's 500 million people, um, with a benefits package worth up to $7,000. It's an extraordinary experiment in that you know no one has ever tried to cover 500 million people with one insurance package. Um, and it's being rolled out very, very quickly. So that's the good news. The challenge is that at the moment it's largely focused on curative services from largely private hospitals and of course the risk is that these resources could be spent on prevention they could be spent on rural primary care the risk is that we divert those resources to fund hospital care with all of the inflationary pressures and uh, and and costs that that entails is this a type of stimulus package for the private healthcare sector in order to get investment to come in to build more hospitals to provide greater level and higher level of service Well, I think to some extent it is. I mean, I think there's a win-win in a political sense in that your urban middle-class constituencies like to get their insurance cards. And of course, if you're living in an urban area, you're maybe not so exposed to the kind of visible communicable diseases that maybe rural populations suffer from. And of course, uh, from the business sector, that we're seeing a subsidy of private um, hospital health care through state funds. Mm. So, you know, that, of course, has benefits for the economy, etc., etc. I think the concern is that there are populations being left behind, and everyone should be concerned about that. You know, where you have populations suffering from communicable diseases, you know, like malaria, but also cholera, polio, 
um, everyone is at risk and we can't afford to neglect those communities for the interests of our economic development but also for our health security. You're listening to Inside Asia and I'm in conversation with Ben Rolfe, CEO of the Asia Pacific Leaders Malaria Alliance. We've been sharing the good news on malaria. Infections are in retreat thanks to the good work of organizations like Ben's. Having said this, the battle might be won, but the war is brewing, and it goes by the name of pandemic. I don't want to be an alarmist, but talk to any healthcare policy expert, epidemiologist, or historian, and there's reason to remain vigilant. In the second half of our conversation, I asked Ben to address health security. What preparations are governments making to stave off the probability of epidemics? Borrowing a page from the region's reduction in malaria, what more might be done? Back to our conversation. Talk about health security a little bit. What's at stake? Well, you know, the, the, the danger of health security in Asia, of a, of a major pandemic in Asia, is as present as it ever was. I think, um, you know, we've got very lucky in recent years with MERS-CoV, for example, in uh, South Korea. Um, some diseases that have the potential for great pandemic risk have been um, stemmed, you know, really at the last minute. And I think, you know, MERS is, is a really good example. We would see, if we were to have a major pandemic outbreak, we would see all aviation pretty much stopped overnight. We would see huge economic downturns. Um, and what's required to prevent that is a really robust public health system, really good data, good surveillance, information sharing, and the ability of the public health systems to respond rapidly. Now, Singapore has that. Uh, you couldn't say the same about Bangladesh or some of the other very heavily populated high density, you know, urban populations, we're still at great risk. And pandemics are a, a matter of probability. I mean, as increase in urbanization, uh, people living in proximity, uh, trying to keep pace with all kinds of uh, infrastructure to support and, and, and make sure that we don't have health outbreak, health or, or disease outbreaks. These are all challenges. And sooner or later, we're probably, oh, we've already seen some early indications, but there is the probability something's going to happen. What else can or should be done at this stage in order to uh, reduce the probability? Well, it's a good point. I mean, of course, we're not only seeing increasing population densities, urbanization, but also the way in which trade in our region is so interconnected. You know, maybe 10 years ago, if there were a major outbreak in the Philippines, you probably wouldn't find a huge degree of impact across the rest of the region. But now we would see all global shipping suffer, for example. So we're very interconnected and interdependent. What is required is a really strong, well-financed public health system in each of these countries. You need uh, assets on the ground. You need community health services that, that, that reach vulnerable populations. But you also need cooperation between countries. And I think, you know, we have a challenge of multilateralism and regional cooperation in Asia, where countries do not have a strong incentive or capacity to cooperate effectively across borders. And, that be and explain that, Ben, because that's interesting. That's that there's a moment now where EU, uh, North America, there are probably more um, uh, sophisticated approaches to managing this and guiding this. But then there is this breakdown of institutions in, in many ways. What's, what's driving that? Why is that happening now, particularly at a time when trade is on the rise, cross-border exchanges are, are like they've never been before? What's going on in the, in the background? 
So this is a really fascinating issue around uh, regional cooperation and particularly around regional public goods in Asia. And I'm sure it's as true for aviation, climate change as it is for health, but certainly in my field, you know, the donors, the aid industry has largely moved out of Asia. You know, many of these institutions like the World Health Organization, ASEAN, Secretariat, were at one time very dependent on the bilateral donors, the UK government, DFID, US government. Many of those donors are now moving out of Asia and focusing on sub-Saharan Africa. Because Asia doesn't require the same level of support it once needed because of economic growth. One would hope. One would hope that governments would step in where those donors are moving to their sites to Africa. The increasingly wealthy governments of Asia, the Indonesias, India, would be themselves funding ASEAN, themselves funding the World Health Organization to make up the gap and support those regional public goods, that regional coordination that's so important. But they are not. Why not? I mean, if, if there is this, this, uh, this, this kind of sieving off of, or this, this uh, leaking off of this type of support, why wouldn't or countries step up? They don't have the resources or they feel we've got it covered or we beat that one, we're moving on. What's behind that? Well, it's a good question. I mean, you could go back to say, well, what was the impetus for the European Union and the European Commission? And the history of that, of course, was a world war and then some very, uh, you know, foresightful um, public leaders that had a vision for closer harmonization and integration. I don't think we have that in the ASEAN region yet. Um, These are political currents that I guess are things that happen over decades or generations. But the speed at which this region is growing requires a level of integration and cooperation that I think probably takes longer um, than the the economic reality uh, allows. And certainly in my field, I would expect to see, given that a pandemic outbreak would bring regional trade to a stop, I would expect to see governments handsomely investing in the World Health Organization in the region, handsomely investing in cross-border cooperation, information sharing. You know, we have amazing technologies to share epidemiological data across border, but we're not doing it. Um, I, I, I think there's just a lack of effective cooperation, maybe a lack of regional leadership um, and a lack of investment in, you know, we have the shared platforms, but they're woefully inadequate given most of the population of the world now live in our region. Knowing what you know and having experienced this gradual eradication of malaria, if you were handed the mantle of Grand Poobah, Health Minister for Asia or ASEAN, um, what would be your priorities? What would be the top three things you would do in order to make sure you create the right healthcare infrastructure to prevent these types of outbreaks or issues? Well, firstly, you've got to invest in primary care and public health. You've got to focus on stopping people getting sick. And if you do that, you tick off so many boxes immediately. You increase the efficiency of the health system because for $1 spent on prevention is worth 20 spent on cure. So firstly, you increase efficiency. Secondly, you increase equity because if you know the, the populations most at risk are the rural or the underclass, the you know populations who are already living in you know, economically tenuous circumstances. So you've increased equity, you've increased efficiency. You also provide political stability because people that get access to healthcare feel uh, enfranchised, they feel part of the system and they're not being driven into healthcare de- uh, impoverishment because of you know catastrophic spending on you know sudden illness taking them out of the workforce. So an investment in primary care and preventative 
uh, public health services, ticks all of those boxes immediately. It's a win, 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 if you like. So, yeah, that would be my first and last manifesto item, I think. And then just drive that through from one country to the next to make sure there's at least a platform or or a net beneath the, the most at risk. That's right. And being clear about the counterfactual, which is a disinvestment from primary care and prevention, an investment of scarce public resources in inefficient hospital services, mostly targeting middle class urban populations and often in poorly regulated services providing, you know, treatment for unnecessary conditions, etc. It is really important that we focus on stopping the NCD, the non-communicable disease epidemic, obesity, smoking and manage this unfinished agenda of communicable disease like malaria. Yeah. Is there a possibility that we could have a resurgence of some of these uh, uh, communicable diseases if, for instance, uh, the investment levels do not hit or come in the way that you think feel they need to come in? Oh, no, it's a certainty, not yeah. a possibility. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you look at Sri Lanka, for example, eliminated um, malaria in 2017, but once you've eliminated the disease, you have to still have a surveillance capacity. People coming in to Sri Lanka by boat will have their blood checked for malaria because, of course, we have a lot of people coming in from Tamil Nadu mm. into Sri Lanka potentially infected, and you could start off that whole cycle of infection again. Mm. So you need to maintain a standing army of health workers to prevent the disease coming back. Politically, that's very hard to sustain if you've not seen a malaria case for five years. So the need for public health advocates to keep talking about the importance of vaccination, responsible use of antibiotics, all of these things, you've really just got to keep your foot on the gas in perpetuity. Ben, uh, is the dollar or or government's, uh, let let me put it this way, are, is there competition for between, let's say, education or other social services uh, vis-a-vis the health spend? In other words, are there just so many requirements and needs across Asia that healthcare maybe isn't getting its due because it's not as obvious or there doesn't appear to be a crisis, whereas there clearly is, let's say, in, in uh, infrastructure, um, you know, where, where you can see Jakarta's moving its capital. You know, that's a pretty major issue, and that's going to take a lot of money. In other words, do you feel like this is part of the problem that healthcare awareness, or at least political awareness of the importance of getting healthcare right, isn't fully understood and therefore isn't being invested in appropriately? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, you know, the the health sector is normally worth about 10% of GDP. So it's a huge industry and investments in health does also have really big externalities for employment and economic growth. But the impact is not so visible as building a bridge or building, you know, a new port or something. So certainly I think we need to make a stronger case for the political, democratic, economic benefits of investments in health. But, you know, the World Bank recently did a really good public expenditure review in Indonesia review. And one of their key findings was just pointing to the very low tax receipts for the government in Indonesia receive. You know, ultimately social sectors in Indonesia are underinvested in, but the solution is not necessarily that we need to divert money away from infrastructure into social sectors. The government just needs to get better at collecting tax and using that increased revenue for sectors that in themselves will protect future revenue, which is education and health. Right. You know, getting people economically productive and stopping them getting sick. It's, mm. it's not rocket science. Mm. What impact, if any, are you seeing in terms of changes in healthcare patterns uh, as a result of climate change? Do you see any shifts occurring right now? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the big one is dengue. Um, you know, if you look at, uh, I work in malaria, and pretty much the first question any health minister I meet in this region will ask is, that's great, now what are you doing about dengue? Right. And, uh, you know, Aedes aegypti, the vector for dengue, is extremely resilient, loves hiding in, you know, damp places in urban areas. And as people places get hotter and wetter, it's inevitable we're going to see a rise in those vector-borne diseases. Is it as addressable as malaria? Is it just simply just uh, refocusing the effort on a different, you know, uh, character uh, as opposed to the one that carries malaria? Or is there something else with dengue which which, uh, requires more vigilance? Dengue is a really difficult one. I mean, dengue is not um, as dangerous as malaria in terms of the infection, but it is a growing, I would say, a growing crisis in the region. And... It's a virus. It's very hard to address. There isn't a cure in the same way that we have a you know a one dollar, three day treatment with malaria, yeah. and um, the vector is very challenging. And if you look at Singapore, who've invested huge amounts of R and D money and intervention money in addressing dengue, not always with a hundred percent success, you then take, you know, that challenge and look at a municipal council in a provincial part of India, for example, you know, the capacity that the environmental health department of Chhattisgarh might have compared with Singapore, you immediately see the scale of the problem we're facing. You know, I have both my wife and I have both had dengue, uh, and she's had chikungunya as well, which again is another uh, mosquito-borne disease. Um, and that the, the fearful part is if your immune system is compromised, you're even more susceptible. Um, and then transfusion sometimes is the only solution. Even then, that's touch and go. So it's interesting to hear you say that, that actually malaria is more infectious and more dangerous than dengue because my impression has always been dengue is the one to avoid. That's right. I mean, actually, in this region, we have a slightly different epidemiology in that we've been very successful in tackling uh, falciparum malaria, which is the most dangerous type of malaria that can lead to cerebral malaria. In this region, increasingly, we have relapsing malaria, which is vivax malaria. It's not as dangerous, but it's harder to get rid of because it hides in your liver. So really, we're, we're seeing quite a dynamic situation in terms of the vector-borne disease landscape. Mm-hmm. But actually, you know, the common denominator for all of this is investment in primary health care and public health. You know, putting money into prevention, and that will involve vector control to get mosquitoes drop the population of mosquitoes in both urban areas where you have dengue and rural areas where you have malaria. It's making sure that people get treatment as quickly as they can. You know, there's a very clear common denominator to all of this. And the risk that I see is that there are not enough active champions talking about the return on investment from these interventions Mm. and how critical they are, Mm. and then encouraging governments to almost compete with each other. Mm. You know, it should be... um, broadly recognize that China, who have had malaria since the dawn of human civilization, have managed to end all malaria cases Mm. now for three years. Mm. Sri Lanka the same. Mm. You know, these are extraordinary achievements and it's very likely that the whole of Asia will eliminate malaria by 2030 for the first time in human history. That's extraordinary. Who are those advocates? If it's not government, if it's not uh, health policy or public policy, uh, corporates? Is there a role for corporates to play in this? really critical role really critical role you know in this region a region driven by business it is business leaders that in some cases in some in in many ways drive the agenda they have the access the ear of many of the senior politicians and a lot to gain actually for investments in public health and prevention you know this is uh 
an agenda that keeps their employees in the office, it keeps their potential future employees in university and in school, and uh, it prevents potentially a pandemic outbreak that would undermine you know, economic growth for, for years. So certainly there's a role for them to play. In our space, we have an initiative called M2030, which is a business leadership initiative. We try and bring in senior executives of some of Asia's biggest businesses, and we get them to use their influence and their voice okay. to promote this agenda. And it's been hugely effective. Yeah, so, so creating advocates. Creating advocates. I have found through our engagement with M2030, there are a large number of business leaders that are just looking for an opportunity and a simple message to use their voice to progress. Mm. You know, it, the, the goodwill is there, but I think many people don't know where to start and they don't have the enabling environment to make their voice heard. What we have found is by providing a very simple platform, a session at the World Economic Forum, for example, then those business leaders will come and they will speak passionately about the agenda mm. and they will use the information that they've gained in their dialogue with heads of government and senior ministers and other private sector leaders. Mm. So I think the opportunity is there and they could do a lot more. It's, is it something that are there certain countries or certain corporations that you see showing up more often than not? And is it necessarily because it's in their direct interest or are you just suggesting it's in their indirect interest in terms of workforce, health of a nation, health of an economy? Yeah, I mean, I think it, 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 it links back to a lot of individuals. If you look at Myanmar, for example, um, the Minister for Health there, Mintwe, is a visionary and he is passionate about malaria. He comes from a malaria background, and he has not only driven down malaria, uh, again, halved it and halved it again in his own country, he's also engaged with all of the other countries in the Mekong, encouraging his fellow ministers to do right. the same. Right. And, you know, a lot of our job is just about supporting individuals like that, giving them the briefing they need, convening the meetings that they need to progress that agenda. And again, a little bit of lubrication, a little bit of creating an enabling environment um, can really push these advocates and leaders out front. In our field, in, in health, we particularly suffer from silos. You know, people go through their medical training and, you know, they specialize in surgery, then a subsection of surgery, and before you know it, they're lost in a, you know, a, a highly complex world that um, is very difficult to bring back to these big picture decisions around financing, allocation of resources affecting hundreds of millions of people. My perspective is that we are really missing leadership in that space. And there is an opportunity there, isn't there? Because I think in some ways what we've learned and what we know is a more holistic approach to the health and the way that we kind of assess somebody's health condition, not looking myopically at, you know, what is the, you know, out, the, the problem, but in fact what could be behind it um, can get you a better result. But e even though all the evidence is there and, and everyone keeps speaking about it, again, the specializations and the focus on curative and the idea that there's money to be made by prescribing or treating or surgical means that we're falling away from what we probably should be doing, knowing full well that the evidence is there to support a more preventive approach. Well, you're exactly right. And in that context, it's got to be a big shout out to Japan. You know, Japan's leadership on universal health coverage over the last couple of years has been extraordinary. You know, they have looked at their own system and realized that by 2050, uh, the ratio of taxpayers to people in retirement will be one to one. They know they cannot afford to push that aging population into a curative focused model. They've got to keep these populations healthy for a prevention model or they're, they're not going to be able to afford it. But not only have they focused on their own domestic agenda, making sure that they are focused on prevention, 
they have really shown leadership through G7, G20 in driving that agenda globally and particularly in this region. You know, listening to these examples, Ben, it does give me the feeling, which you said before, about the falling of the way or the retreating of multilateral associations that are wonderful platforms for cross-fertilizing or sharing insights or uh, discoveries is something which is essential because you just pointed out Myanmar, Japan, different experiences, different populations, different economic situations, nevertheless, important insights which could lead towards better policy decisions. Yeah, I think that's right. And in a sense, it, it's almost a shame, without wishing to undermine Japan's leadership, which is extraordinary, but in a sense, we're relying on luck and happenstance that there is one kind of OECD member driving an agenda across the other ASEANs. Really, these agendas are critical to ASEAN's financial stability, financial growth, health security. The ASEAN countries that are now growing at an extraordinary pace should be investing their own resources in the institutions that are underpinning cooperation around public health. There should be a well-resourced World Health Organization in this region resourced and focusing on the financing trajectory. Where's the money going? Who's missing out? Um, You know, the fact that we don't have anybody looking at that agenda for the whole, you know, the engine of global growth is extraordinary to me. I guess all we can do is hope for people like you and organizations like yours to continue to fight the good fight. But uh, thank you for your time and thanks for your insights. It's been fascinating. Thanks, Steve. Thanks. Really enjoyed it. That was my conversation with Ben Rolfe, CEO of the Asia-Pacific Leaders Malaria Alliance and superhero in the fight against contagious disease. That brings us to the Asia Insider Minute, that moment in the program where I reflect on the conversation you just heard and pose a few additional thoughts or questions of my own. According to the nonprofit group Voices for Malaria-Free Future, malaria is responsible for somewhere between 700,000 to a million lives every year and remains a leaning cause of death for children under the age of five. Even if you survive malaria, studies have shown its long-term debilitating effects. The economic impact is long-term as well. Malaria and other communicable diseases contribute to income loss, escalating health care costs, employee absenteeism, and much, much more. And while Asia is fighting back, Africa and many parts of South America continue to languish from the effects of these diseases. So it may come as no surprise that there's good news and bad news. First, the good news. When companies, governments, and nonprofits align, results can be had. Because the cost of malaria treatment has plummeted in recent years and governments have rallied to fund malaria prevention campaigns, communities everywhere have benefited. For more complex infectious diseases like antibiotic-resistant respiratory diseases, or HIV, millions still suffer. Ben Rolfe and his Asia-Pacific Leaders Malaria Alliance is trying to show the way. That with the appropriate funding, public awareness, and pharmaceutical company commitment, there is the promise of better universal health. Now the bad news. Communicable diseases as a cause of death have been falling for decades thanks to advanced medicines, vaccines, and prescription drugs. Unfortunately, our high-paced, high-stress lives have ushered in what's referred to as non-communicable diseases, including heart attacks, strokes, cancer, and diabetes. These, in large part, are called lifestyle diseases, long-term and expensive to treat. 
But there's hope here too. And now for the real shocker. In many cases, prevention can stave off the onset. Stress, high caloric diets, pollution, and poor fitness are at the root of many of our modern ailments. Our energy, food, and lifestyle companies have fed the beast of a less healthy human, and to get it back means taking ownership of one's own personal health. That means eating, drinking, smoking, and lounging less, and exercising, diet, and sleeping more. Modern healthcare systems are banking on a populace addicted to consumption and are investing in high-cost detection, treatment, and surgical solutions to meet that demand. So I ask you, how's your health? Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Inside Asia. Didn't mean to frighten you, but with the passing of this Halloween season, consider this. The thing you should fear the most isn't somewhere out there lurking in the dark. It's living in your fridge. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. 